0: Let us turn this evening to the Old Testament, to our study in the book of Joshua, and to follow on where we left off last week, and hopefully to complete what we started in last week. I don't know what on earth happened last Sunday night, but we certainly didn't get through all I thought we would get through. And you say to yourself, well I'd give him a good start for this evening, and you're right. But yet a lot more seems to be in this section that we were looking at than perhaps I give credence for at the outset of our study. But just to remind ourselves of where it is we are and what it is we're looking at this evening. It's in chapter 9 of Joshua And we're looking at the first two or three verses in particular. Particularly the first two, where we read, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it. They gathered together to fight with Joshua And Israel with one accord. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had gone to Jericho, and I, they worked craftily, and went and pretended to be ambassadors. These verses this evening. Now I mentioned to you last week that the Christian life, although an absolutely glorious life, is a life that is, in a sense, lived on a battlefield. It's a life that's a warfare. It's a life that on many occasions, on many days, is anything but easy. And we noticed why the Christian life is a warfare. Because there is a war raging between two great seeds, as someone has described it. There is a war raging between God and the principle of truth and light, holiness, justice, and Satan himself, who stands for everything that's contrary, who stands for everything that is unlike God, everything that is against God. And the moment a man or woman, boy or girl, becomes a Christian, they enter into this warfare. And they enter into it of necessity because they've opted out, they've moved out, they've shifted ranks. That is, they've no longer, they're no longer walking or living or existing on the side of darkness, on the side of hostility to God, on the side of ignorance they have shifted camps they have moved positions to live to glorify God for which they were made in the first place but which sin but because sin has entered into life and into human experience they were once unable to do so and having shifted ranks having moved camps they have entered into the conflict and this conflict for the Christian as an individual and for the church as a body is so absolutely potent and real that that's our first that's our first comment that the enemy isn't something intangible it's not something you don't know about it's not something you can't put your finger on the enemy is very real it is absolutely real and we noticed how this truth is brought home In the first verse of chapter 9, where it says of all these nations of Canaan, that they came together, joined a confederacy to fight against the land of Israel, the people of Israel, to fight against their moving into the land of promise and their possession of that land which God had committed to give them away back with Abraham. But we noticed last week also that they weren't just a very real enemy in the sense that they all came together in a confederacy. We noticed that they were also a very informed enemy. They weren't ignorant because they came together, we read, when they heard of it. When they heard of all the dealings of God with that nation in previous generations and years. And in particular in this context here, when they'd heard of what Joshua and the people had done on Mount Ebo and Gerizim, when Joshua had carved out the, the divine law and presented that law to the people as either life or death, the opportunity of life or death, namely through their obedience or disobedience. And this people, when they'd heard of this law, And the demands of this God through his law. They were not wanting this God or his law to have any any place in their lives or any prerogative over them. And so they said, no, we can't have it. And thus they came out an informed enemy, as well as a very real enemy. And we noticed as we looked at that last week, how it challenges the church in 1986. ...to recognise that it is against a very real foe... ...and equally a very informed foe. And we don't need to go into great detail this evening... ...in recapping this. But surely it demands of us... ...just as the world comes at the people of God... ...with great ferocity... ...and with great voice... ...and with great uh, power... How much more ought the church this evening and in this generation to face that same hostile real enemy with the same kind of offensive. Come at it with the same potency but more because it has greater power. Come at it with all its knowledge because it has more knowledge. Come at it with its wisdom because it has more wisdom. But we notice that the church isn't doing that. Yes, it's doing it in certain quarters. And we praise God for that. But on our own doorstep, we challenge ourselves because we're simply not doing enough. The state of the Christian church in Middergeil is, to say the least, very vulnerable. And therefore it needs, in Mittergyle the church to come off the wall. It needs the church to rise up. It needs the church to take initiative. It needs the church to face the same enemy that the the central region faces, that Russia faces, that the South African church faces. It needs to come out and to come out fighting. It needs to stop busying itself with all the non-essentials. It needs to stop pitter-pattering about the things that are totally unimportant in the light of eternity. And it needs to come out as an army that is equipped with all the weaponry of God and face the enemy with the same kind of offensive as the world the enemy faces the church with. Because as we noticed last week, the world that doesn't want anything to do with God that is law is a world that isn't ashamed to tell you that it doesn't want anything to do with God. It's never ashamed to tell you where to put your message, where to put your truth, where to put your Christ, where to put your cross. It's never slow to tell you where you can put your Christian standards. It's never slow to tell you that you're wrong in pushing a strong evangelistic Christian message. And why is it not ashamed to tell the church in 1986 what it ought and ought not to do? It's simply not ashamed to do that, because it is blinded. And it is blinded by the prince of this world. And it believes all that the prince of this world is telling. It believes that there is no real God in the heavens that's going to punish It believes that there is no real judgment to face. It believes that there is, in a sense, no necessity at all for man or woman, boy or girl to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. There is no reality in all this Christian message. And all that's important is that man lives and man does what pleases man. Man eats drinks and be merry because tomorrow he dies and this vacuum which is a vacuum created by the prince of this world this fallacy which is a fallacy conjured by the prince of this world is what makes the enemy of the church and the enemy of your soul this evening so very real so very antagonistic so difficult to reach with the gospel and makes the reality of small congregations struggling ministries difficulties facing congregations all the more pertinent but that doesn't allow us to sit back to nothing because if that's the offensive of the world if that's the line of attack that the confederacy of this world is bringing against the church doesn't it need the church to face that enemy with such positive, positive offensive and positive evangelism. But let us look more into what is here before us and see something of the cunning of the enemy also. Because you notice that that Satan is a very cunning enemy. He doesn't always come like a roaring lion so that you can see him and you can hear him before he comes. He's as, subtle, he's as subtle as the serpent. He's cunning. And that is always in the reality of his aim at work. It's throughout every generation of church history. Just as we can say God is never stereotyped in his dealings with man. Equally we can say Satan is never stereotyped in the way that he attacks the Christian church. He'll meet me one day with someone who will tell me to my face what they think of me and what they think of the gospel and what they think of Christ and you know I have a great deal of time for the man who's like that a great deal of time for the woman who's like that because at least they're honest but he'll come to me on other occasions as he comes to you and he'll come with all the subtlety of a serpent winding his way into your heart getting into your situation getting into your mind in such varied and subtle ways that before you realize it the enemy's in and the enemy's there and the enemy's got you against the wall, he's got you humbled. he's got you humiliated even before you've had a chance to find him to to, to attack him and so we notice that the enemy's not just real it's not only informed it's so subtle also it came at Bethlehem we recalled last week in the form of open antagonism it came in the form of blatant lionistic attack if we can use that that term but when it came in 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 the temptations in the wilderness did it not come with all the subtlety of a serpent with all the cunning of someone seeking whatever means possible to gain victory And here, in with with the people of Israel, the enemy not only comes in this great mass of united front, in by the nations of the Hivites, the Amorites, and so on, but he comes with the cunning of the Gibeonites. They've come up because they've decided that open attack is not the best way to save their lives. They come up as representatives as so-called pretended ambassadors, in order to gain an alliance with the nation of Israel, and thus to save their skins and to save their people. And what happens when they come up? They come up with pretense. Or they come up with wonderful qualifications. They come up, they tell us, seeking an alliance, seeking peaceful negotiations, seeking peaceful existence. And more than that they come up saying we're from a very far country and we've come because of the name of the Lord your God before we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt in verse 9 Their qualifications were good They wanted peaceful means in order to gain this, this uh, alliance with Israel and they also came up with this great, great front That it was winsome, that they were on the Lord's side, that they were numbered among his people, that they were fighting the same cause as Israel, that they were wooed and won by the God Jehovah. They were cunning. And we notice here some salutary reminders of lessons that we need to learn in the Christian church. Because as the enemy is so real and sometimes so obvious, He comes and he gets us on many occasions, more often than not, when we think we're strong. And here in Israel's case, were they not experienced? They weren't novices. They were experienced in dealing with God and in God's dealings with them. And they ought to have known better. They ought to have been more prepared. They ought to have been more careful. They ought to have been wiser. But they thought they were strong. And what happens? Along comes the enemy in this very subtle manner. And they gain victory. They come along proposing alliance. And thus, an alliance is made with them. But what's the lesson there? Well, the lessons are so obvious for us. The enemy comes to us this evening. He's perhaps come to you in the past week. He's come up with that quiet voice with that gentle touch and he's spoken to you as you've been harassed he says to you perhaps you're pushing yourself too hard what's the point of burning yourself out who's interested who's going to worry who's going to be concerned he's come to you perhaps in the past week and he said uh, concerning your principles he says perhaps you're too narrow you're too bigoted You're never going to win people with that kind of line, that kind of approach. He's come with all that kind of soft, oozing, winsome kind of approach. So subtle. But perhaps more so he's come in the past week with the kind of approach that the Gibeonites came with. This line of alliance. Make an alliance. Make friends. Make peace. And all will be well. Well, this evening we could look at this for a long time. At the question of alliance. At the subtlety, so often, of alliance as it's used by Satan as he seeks to thwart the work of the gospel and undermine the cause of the gospel in this generation. Many ways we could look at it. But let's just consider one or two. How many people could we look at this evening, known to us? in a very real way some of them intimately known to us who have entered into relationships that they ought never have entered into in the first place now I'm not talking about a man or a woman that has perhaps got married and in the process of that marriage found themselves constrained by the love of God to embrace Christ and thus in the marriage you have a Christian and you have a non-Christian That's a totally separate uh, domestic situation and a situation that the word of God does great concern for and great advice for. But this particular situation that is before us is an alliance where the parties know that it is something they ought not to engage in. And how many of our friends, even how many of ourselves, have entered into relationships where we know we ought not to be. And I could take you to many men this evening. I could take you to women this evening, who in the process of time, girl met boy, boy met girl. And the face was always acceptable. The features were always lovely. The qualifications always seemed so glorious. And they entered into a relationship that was not just platonic, but a relationship that ultimately ended in marriage. And that marriage bond wasn't long in existence. When Boy found out that Girl was not all she really was cut out to be. She was not the lover of Jesus that she seemed to be in the days of courtship. And Girl finds out that Boy was not the boy that she thought he was. As he worked with the youth fellowship. As he worked with the church in evangelism. As he did his duty week by week in the congregation. And there have been many, many disastrous marriages, Christian marriages so-called, where boy or girl has entered into relationship and entered into marriage because Satan has come with all the cunning and said, this is a great alliance. This is a great relationship. And there are many Christian marriages this evening that are anything but happy, that are anything but joyous because they were marriages that were brought about on one hand, through the cunning of Satan, it deceiving the individual's concern. And we must have great pity, and we must have lots of compassion for individuals, boy, girl, in such a predicament. Because it's one of sadness. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. And Christian marriage in the ideal context is equally so. In fact, marriage, in the total sense, in the ideal sense, is best seen in the Christian context. But isn't it a case that so many are anything but ideal? And it's so often the case because of alliances made that ought not to be made. How many businessmen do we know this evening? Or business ladies? We mustn't forget the ladies. But we know plenty, surely who entered into alliance in business contract when their conscience told them that they ought not to. But yet they did. And these alliances have so compromised their positions, so compromised their lives, that their lives are anything but full and anything but real and anything but dynamic. We look at it in respect to church membership. How many men and women have entered into alliance with the church and the church has entered into alliance with them in the form of church membership on the on the on the word or the vow or the acknowledgement that there was love of God just like the Gibeonites we have come because of the name of the Lord your God because we've heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and how many have come to Kirk sessions how many have come to pastors come to them seeking membership in the church and it's not long into the relationship into the the alliance when it's discovered sadly sadly all too often that that alliance was not genuine that commitment wasn't real because there's no real love of the saviour there in the first place when the church speaks of evangelism there's no getting up and go to do anything about evangelism when the church desires to pray, there is no keenness to pray. When the church is decided to make known the gospel of Christ to the community, there is no concern for the lost and for the needy, no compassion that a men and women are facing a lost eternity. All that's concerned in church member membership in such a case and which is absolutely disastrous as an alliance. Is respectability. Is keeping face. Is looking the part. Well the church is not about the business of respectability. And it's not about the business of keeping up the face. It's about the business of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. To a world that is dying in sin. And needs saving fast. And therefore the church needs constantly to be careful at this area. And more than that, we as individuals need to be careful in our alliances, business alliances, relationship alliances. And we can go on, can we, into many other areas, many other areas that would show us how cunning and how subtle he uses this feature, this this area, to wheel his way into the very heart of the church, and instead of being of benefit to the church, weakens the church, undermines its testimony, spoils its influence. And we can say, we could even look at it, if we wanted to, in respect to church relations. There is a great cry today that what's important and what's going to solve the crisis of the church is that we start all getting together holding hands in order to do the work that we're all engaged in. And we're always hearing the comment that we're all engaged in the same work. Whether we be of the Christian faith even and of the non-Christian faith. What absolute nonsense. But that alliance is a very real alliance that is proposed so cunningly to the Christian church this evening. Now I know right across the board that the church is too fragmented. The church is too split apart. The church is too, too uh, splintered. It is too, too small. And there are far, far too many divisions. But we must be very careful in our uh, desire for church union and our desire for ecumenical relations. We must be very careful that that alliance is not made uh, to the detriment of the glory of God. Or to the detriment of his truth as revealed in the scriptures. Because we're not all about the same business. Even though we may all have the label religious. And all have the label even ministers of the gospel. We're not all about the same business. We have to watch. Because the enemy is cunning. The enemy is subtle. And he comes with many varied ways at your soul. And when he's got you. So often he's got you good and well. He comes at the church so often with his face of a lion. And we must be very careful. But one other feature we notice here is that the victory is sometimes very painful also. And not just painful, it's very real. We're often beaten. We're often caught out. We're often ensnared. And why do we say that? Well, we say it because the Gibeonites got their way, they came up not with all the razzmatazz of warfare as the other nations were going to come with. They come up with a quiet, pretended roll of ambassadors. And what happens? It happens in verse fourteen that the men of Israel took some of their provisions, and the Gibeonites had their way. The Gibeonites won. They had. They won. Because we read that Israel did not ask counsel, did not ask counsel of the Lord their God. Now isn't it a fact that we're in this warfare, and isn't it also a fact that constantly we're beaten? Constantly we're caught out, no matter how often we're on our guard, we're constantly caught. Maybe not so much caught by the open onslaught. But caught so often by the cunning attack. And we're caught because we've failed to be dependent upon God. We've failed to look to him. We've failed to trust him. We've failed to rest 100% upon him. And there's a great lesson here for us. Because surely you would have felt that Israel would have learned their lesson by now. Did they not fail for the first time as they confronted I? They they fail because of their pride. They fail because of their neglect of prayer. And yet, what happens? God favors them. God restores them. And bang, they're down again right when they ought not to be. They're down now with the Gibeonites. And they're down because they weren't careful. It shows how slow we are to learn. And it shows how easily we're knocked off. Our pedestal. We look at Peter's experience and what was it that caused Peter's denial of his Lord in the temple. It was purely cowardice that caused him to deny Jesus when he ought to have been acknowledging him. And Peter knew he denied him, you remember, because of the great sorrow that resulted. And it must have been not long after Peter was restored to favor And that denial forgiven. That Peter would have said to himself, I'll never be caught by that one again. And I'll never be involved in that kind of problem again. I've learned my lesson that time. But the enemy, my friends, is so absolutely real that you can never take it for granted. That perhaps because you've fallen once and learned a lesson and come back again. That he'll never get you a second time. Because it's not many more weeks after the denial of Jesus in the temple court. That you find the same Peter doing the same thing or in a similar way to the, to the Gentile Christians at Antioch. Because down from Jerusalem comes Jewish Christians. And Peter's ashamed to be seen identifying with the Gentile Christians. What are these Jewish men going to think? i better get out of here. And thus you notice in the letter to the Galatians that Peter distances himself from those fellow believers among the Gentiles. Because of fear of what the Jewish Christians are going to say. Concerning his attitude. Peter thought he'd learn. But Peter was caught again. He was beaten. The time has gone and I want us to conclude this. And I want us to conclude in a very positive note. Because this same chapter concludes in a positive note. It concludes by telling us. And I don't know if the words in the English dictionary are not. But it concludes by telling us that the enemy there is a beatability to the enemy they're suspect they're vulnerable they're beatable how am I able to say that well I'm able to say it on many for many reasons but you notice here that though the Gibeonites did indeed succeed in their plan you notice that God overruled the failure and the mistakes of Israel and this evening I want us to leave on this note. Because I believe far too many of us, not just here in this congregation, but far too many of us in the presbytery of Ar- our Argyll and Argyll, in the churches of this peninsula, in the congregations up and down our land, I believe far too many of us as Christians are living negatively. We're living as defeatists. We're living as people that, that believe we will never win and there is no use in trying with it. And that's a very subtle attack. It's a very subtle deceit that I want us to get completely out of our minds. Because not only did God with the Gibeonites cause this thing to be redressed which had happened and turn it out for his good and for the glory of Israel but he will do exactly the same thing with you. You might be beaten this evening. You might feel that you've been attacked. And Satan is saying to you, I've got you. And you'll never recover. Well, look at this chapter and see what God did with the Gibeonites. Yes, he made them woodcutters. He made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation of Israel. He turned what was wrong into good because Israel admitted that they'd done wrong. They'd repented of the error. And he forgave them. He restored them. He brought them back to a place of usefulness and that's what we've got to get into our heads as Christian ministers as Christians in all our congregations we've got to get it into our heads that the enemy no matter how volatile and no matter how informed and no matter how dynamic it may seem it is a beatable enemy and it's a beatable enemy because the Christian is a winner You know we fail to grasp that truth we fail to live with the dynamic of that truth in our experience that we are overcomers in jesus christ we are winners in jesus christ we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us but the pathetic situation in the church the pathetic plight of the pulpit is that we don't believe we're winners. Paul says to the Romans overcome evil with good. What's that got to do with what we're talking about this evening? Well that these words are words of hope. And they are words of courage. And they are words that are telling us that there is always the potential and the possibility. Of victory for the Christian church. The Christian church is a winner this evening. And it will never lose till the gates of hell rise up against it. It is absolutely secure. It is absolutely stable. It will not crumble. No matter what comes up against it, no matter what form, no matter what, no matter what manner of attack, the enemy will approach it with. Let it be known and let us always remember that it will never be quenched. And we will never be beaten. And you call. Go back to that letter that we read in Ephesians. And go back and look at why it will never be beaten. Because as Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 10 at verse 5. Verse 4. He says the weapons of our warfare. They're not carnal. We're in a warfare, Paul knows he's in a warfare. But he says the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. and The weapons of our church this evening, they're not carnal. And they're not secularization, they're not gimmicks. They're nothing of these things. The answers to the enemy this evening, Paul tells us, are absolutely mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, what are they? What are the weaponry? Well, the weaponry are those which he makes mention of in the Ephesian letter: faith, salvation, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, faith. These are the weapons that makes the Christian church invincible, and we need to take up these weapons. We need to put on these weapons. We need to live with these weapons. Now the great giant of the Philistines, he wasn't beaten by all the shining armory of Israel, was he? No, he was never beaten by those men. No matter how many men Saul would have put out with, sword, with spear, with cannon even, the giant would have still won the day. The great man of the Philistines would have won. When God went out with his weaponry, the Philistine giant did fall. The enemy of this world, the enemy of the church this evening, is an enemy that will know it's in a warfare when we rise up with a weapon of the warfare. And that is why in hell this evening, that is why Satan this evening, that is why the forces of evil this evening cringe at the thought of a dynamic church with this kind of weapon of because it can't stand against it. It can't stand against the truth. It can't stand against mighty faith. David proved that. It can't stand against the workings of his spirit. Nor can it stand against the power of its gospel. Are we using these weapons? Is this church equipped with these weapons? Is the warfare that we're in the midst of being fought with our hands or with the weapons that Paul has just mentioned? Well, if they're being fought with our hands, with our wisdom, with our gimmicks, with our secularization, we will be in for a great hiding. And we will be forever in retreat. But if we start putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of faith, the sword of the Spirit, then we will not be running. We will be making glorious advance. The enemy will be coming, yes. The enemy will be coming not as our attacker, but will be coming as our captain. May God help us. Help us to be the kind of dynamic church that God wants us to be in 1986 that is not against the wall doing nothing but that is in the world producing and projecting and moving forward with all the glory of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. May God help us to come to the place where Paul came to when writing to Timothy. What was his closing words to Timothy? I have fought a good fight. I have run a good race. There is now laid up for me a great prize. May it be that we're able to come in the end of the day after we have fought to be able to say we have fought well. Amen. Let us pray bless your word to us O oh god and help us to apply its lessons to our lives for jesus sake amen